Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I'll speak with Keith Barr, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels, with his report on weather and how the hotel industry is recovering. Some might say, bouncing back from the pandemic. And that's despite inflation, continuing staff shortages, and a cut by so many hotels on basic services. And speaking of recovery, my extended conversation with Michael Smith, the co-author of Cabin Fever, a great book with great reporting on what happened on one cruise ship, the Holland America Zandam, at the beginning of COVID. It's the true story of a deadly cruise. What was done, what wasn't done, the real and the unlikely heroes, and perhaps most important, what we've learned since. Up first, the CEO of Intercontinental, Keith Barr, calling in from London. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply hello sir hello sir how are you i'm okay so let's let's try to do in the in the in the time we have allotted a recap of all the crazy wild ride we've been on uh hotels in particular uh when you and i first talked at the beginning of the pandemic we had at least more than a thousand hotels that we were keeping track of 
that were technically in a, in a position of foreclosure. Uh, they had not been able to make their debt service. Some of them were closing. Uh, the only reason I think the re- that they, that most of them didn't close is that the banks didn't want to operate hotels. So they stayed open, and guess what? Travel's coming back. The summer of 2022, uh, you've heard this already 19 different times, I'm sure, even in your own board meetings, with a vengeance. Uh, you know, people just decided they were going to travel. Nobody was going to deny them. Uh, they were going to travel at any cost. And I just looked at your quarterly reports, Keith. You did pretty well. Yeah, we had a, a fantastic first half of the year. And if you had told me when we were speaking in 2020 that it would look this good today, uh, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, you're definitely seeing that consumers had that desire to travel uh, and have been getting out this summer. And we're seeing record levels of occupancies in many markets and seeing pricing um, in many markets that's surpassing what it was in 2019, too. So incredible demand for travel on the leisure side. Uh, particularly in the U.S. and also here in Europe. Asia's beginning to open up, and of course, China's battling those periodic lockdowns. But if people can travel and restrictions are lifted, they are traveling uh, and doing it with a vengeance, like you said. You know, we're looking at average hotel rates that are about 34% above what they were in 2019. Our good pal Dawn Gilbertson from the Wall Street Journal, listen to this, Keith. She found a Motel 6 in Santa Barbara, California, with an average room rate per night of $426. <laughs> People want to travel and people are willing to pay for it. And I think it was interesting, as you said, during COVID, remember, that was such a demand suppression event for travel. People wanted to travel, but they couldn't. And now when those restrictions have been lifted, they're saying, you know what, I've canceled two or three family holidays and we're going to get out there and we're going to go do it. And you know, the balance sheet of the consumer is quite healthy today. And you're seeing that just desire to connect and to reconnect is um, without question landing all around the world right now. And also here in Europe, as you know, um, Kind of a lot of Americans traveling to, to, to the Europe right now because of the dollar strength as well, too, which is great to see. You mentioned going together. I think that's key. I remember back in 2008 uh, and 2009 walking in to what was then the Hilton in Paris at the, in the, at the height of the economic debacle around the world. And the hotel was completely oversold with Americans. And I went up and I asked all my fellow countrymen the same question, and I got the same answer. I said, Clearly, you knew there was an economic downturn in America. Oh, yeah. And you decided to come anyway? Absolutely. Why? And the answer, almost unilateral. We decided if we didn't come now, we're never going to go, and we brought the entire family. So I'm sure you're seeing that as well. Uh, you know, multi-generational trips, let's get you know grandpa and grandma to pay for it, but we're going. Yeah, without question. Those multi-generational trips are happening with more and more frequency. And I think what's interesting about some of the consumer research we did um, and it makes sense, was what is the last thing that consumers, in terms of discretionary spending, will stop doing? It's travel. You know, they have those couple weeks off a year to be with the family. So they may not go buy that new television, but they are going to take the family on holiday. And they can stay, whether it's in a Holiday Inn Express or an Intercontinental or a Six Senses, depending upon their price point. We've got our 17 brands and 6,000 hotels around the world. We can meet those needs. But you're seeing that multi-generational travel and people saying, you know, we haven't been able to do it. We're going to do it today. And then, of course, when I said they were going to travel at any cost, we were seeing average room rates, the Motel 6 notwithstanding, that were way above the 34% that I just quoted. You know, in certain markets, you know, they were getting $1,200, $1,800 a night for a room, and nobody was blinking. It was unbelievable. Um, and now, here we are entering the fourth quarter. My guess is, and tell me what your crystal ball tells you, although that's kind of a dangerous territory, I know, but my crystal ball tells me that... You know, people have just gotten their credit card statements and they're saying, 
I paid what? <laughs> and 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 they and they may make a decision. I, I know a number of people are saying, okay, I've done traveling for 2022, uh, but I'll go back again in 2023. So, are you seeing some softness in the fourth quarter? We haven't actually, you know, across the industry, every single month has gotten sequentially better than the previous month in terms of demand. And so what you said clearly, a leisure-led recovery, incredible strength into the summer, but business travel gets stronger every single month too. So as leisure begins to soften naturally coming into the fourth quarter, we're seeing the same thing happen in business travel and groups, meetings, and events. People are saying, you know what, I haven't got my team together in two and a half years or I haven't been able to go meet with that client face-to-face and I'm tired of doing it over Zoom or Teams. And so we're now seeing business travel begin to come back. Again, clearly more in the US and in Europe, and now into Asia it begins to open up too. And so I think you will see leisure continue to be strong. You're gonna see that leisure component continue on, and you're gonna see business travel come back with groups, meetings, and events into the autumn. You know, the other thing that I've noticed in the last two and a half years are the level of complaints from from travelers. The first one, which will come as no surprise to you, happened, of course, during the pandemic, their inability to get refunds from either airlines, hotels, resorts, tour operators when their trips were canceled because of COVID. And those cases are are still continuing. Uh, The second biggest complaint was insurance because people didn't understand travel insurance or they bought travel insurance thinking it would be covered for COVID. It wasn't. And they they were not only out the money for the insurance, they were out the money for the trip. Uh, but let me tell you the third complaint, which I'm sure you're aware of, and this is, by the way, against airlines and hotels, it's additional fees, in this case, the resort fee, um, a story that's uh, not going away, a story that's been with us for quite some time. And we're seeing some court cases that have been resolved recently, uh, one with Marriott and uh, one of the state attorney generals, where they're going to have to fully disclose the actual resort fee you're going to pay on the same page that they're quoting the room rate. Are you seeing that with your hotels now? Yeah, you know, I think throughout the pandemic, what we tried to make sure is we did put our, you know, our customers and our colleagues first. And so in terms of cancellations and refunds, we I think were really, really proactive about that and making sure that customers were able to get their refunds back. There were certain countries where you weren't allowed to, which was a kind of a unique thing based upon some laws that were passed. But for the most part, we'd be able to look after our customers. And we've been very, very transparent about our disclosures too, and continuing to strengthen our disclosures in terms of our digital channels, specifically, what are you getting? What are you paying for? And particularly because the European markets are much more progressive in that space of requiring it, I think we're really pretty well positioned, Peter, to, to make sure that customers know what they're getting, make sure they're having a great experiences in our brands, and we'll continue to evolve that as legislation changes. Do you see the resort fee continuing? I think we'll continue in certain markets. Yeah, without question. I think that we'll continue um, based upon what the practices are, but it will actually be probably by state by state and country by country will vary slightly. So the important thing is you just pointed out is making sure we're being very clear disclosures of what are they paying for, what are they receiving for those services, and making sure we're in compliance. Okay, I've got to ask the, the devil's advocate question. Is the resort fee negotiable? Um, is it negotiable in terms of if you're utilizing the services? The answer is no. I mean, it's basically we don't have many, many hotels in the resort fee space. Um, but effectively, if it's been disclosed, it's part of the overall pricing and packages and the services. I got you. All right, I had to ask it. <laughs> no worries, that's fine. Not, not a problem. So now let's go beyond that. Um, nobody really planned for the pandemic. Nobody was really ready for the pandemic. It was just a question of how quickly you could pivot, adjust, and and continue to adjust as the, the situation changed because it was so fluid. When you look back on the last two and a half years, what lessons did you learn? 
I think we realized what was really important to customers and how we can become better at removing friction from the experience and using technology to do that in many instances too. But it was really clear about customers wanted transparency. They wanted ease of booking. They wanted ease of communication. And so I think it forced this industry to raise its game in terms of its investment in technology, making it easier for customers to book with us, to stay with us, to communicate with us uh, in an open, transparent way too. We also realized certain things were not as important to customers as well. And how we basically had been doing the same things over and over and over again in, in the industry because we had. What changed? I think that the number of things in the guest experience in this industry that we kept doing for decades, we didn't need to do anymore. So you think about how much clutter was in guest rooms three years ago. We took everything out during COVID and we figured what's really important for customers? What do they want in there? How can we provide things through technology rather than you know a physical guest directory? How can we make sure that overall... It's a cleaner, you know, more sleek experience overall in the guest room versus having lots of tents and cards and pieces of paper. Um, recognizing that service for housekeeping in the mainstream brands can be done every couple of days or every three days upon request, not every single day, which it makes it more um, beneficial for the hotel operations, but also make sure we have less impact on the environment to move into bulk bath amenities, right, from single use. So all those little things that we learned during COVID of how can we just take things out that are not valued to customers, but make sure we're delivering great experiences through technology. You know, you mentioned those tent cards. Every time I ever checked into a hotel, the very first thing I did was sweep everything off the desk and put it in a drawer or throw it out. I didn't even look at it. Without question. And, and we kept doing it as an industry time and time again, right? And so now we realize customers don't really want that. And if you can give them that information digitally, give them the way they want to, it's a win-win. Less impact on the environment, less clutter in the guest room, better experience. You know, we talk about technology. I always worry that technology, when it takes precedence either over common sense or the conversation is not really helping much at all. I'll, I'll give you an example. We saw all the development, uh, exactly was started pre-pandemic, with robots at hotels. You know, robot to deliver room service or to deliver an amenity, or if you've forgotten a toothbrush, the robot would deliver it. And you know what happened with the robots? I mean, every college kid in the world had a baseball bat. <laughs> and they were beating the crap out of the robots. One robot, actually, I don't know how it did this, it actually escaped from the hotel. It ran away. <laughs> It must have been looking for a better life. <laughs> so let me guess, you're not doing robots. No, no. But I think we're leveraging technology above property. And what I always talk to our team about is how can we take away tasks from our frontline staff to free up their time to take care of customers? Because at the end of the day, it's about human connections. And I think you're right. People want to have a conversation. They want to have that connection. So how can we take away things that maybe take time away from our colleagues from working and talking to customers too. So that's how we think about leveraging technology, not about replacing people with technology, but replacing activities so that they can be freed up to, to take care of people. Of course, there's the airline model, which is let's replace everybody with technology and, and you can't get anybody on the phone. Uh, every time I get to an airport and I see kiosks, I run because that, that eliminates the opportunity for me to talk to somebody. Uh, so I hope you, you're, you're not getting rid of people. You're keeping them on the front desk so they can talk to people. Without question, without question, Peter, because the, you know, you want to be able to engage with someone, understanding a question about the hotel, the local area, the restaurant, in particular, if you move more into the luxury and the lifestyle hotels, people want a more high touch experience overall, too. So, you know, people are going to be foundational for what we provide in the service industry. And, you know, we love our colleagues around the world because they are such incredible people who have looked after guests throughout COVID. And now as we're into the recovery, you know, they're busier than ever. You know, speaking of recovery, if I'd had this conversation with you back in 2019, as I did with your counterparts at Hilton and at Marriott, if I said, hey, what's in the pipeline? 
uh, the guys at Hilton would say, "We're opening one new hotel every 16 hours," and 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 Hilton would say, "That was Marriott." Hilton would say, "We're opening up one new hotel every 24 hours." It was astounding. And if I'd asked you how many Holiday Inns you were opening, what would the answer have been back three years ago? Well, gosh, we just crossed over our 3,000th Holiday Inn Express Hotel globally uh, this year. So, I mean, the pace of development continues to accelerate. We have now. 1,850 hotels in development across our 17 brands. Um, we signed 200 hotels in the first half, then opened up 100 hotels. And that's in spite of labor challenges, supply chain challenges, you know, COVID lockdowns and restrictions in certain countries too. So the demand for our brands is higher than ever. And we'll continue to see our business grow. So it's, um, it's an exciting time for, the, for this industry to continue coming out of COVID, helping us grow our great brands and, and, and help us grow this industry. Do you see a point of diminishing returns where you can't have four hotels on every corner? What we've been able to do is make sure all of our brands have very clear swim lanes. So different experiences, different stay occasions, different price points, too. And so I think with 17 brands, we have a very robust portfolio because you could spend $120 a night staying at a Holiday Inn Express like I did with my family in North Carolina looking at universities. Or you can go on holiday and spend 2,000 euros a night to stay at a Six Senses resort. So I think that the way that our brand portfolio is positioned on stays and on price points lets us, again, meet all those different customer needs. And so, you know, I think we have more than enough brands today, but we can always look to add more as time goes on. Hey, listen, if you're spending $2,000 a night at Six Senses looking for colleges, I want to be your kid. <laughs> now, that, that, that was dad getting a break after, after a long couple of years. <laughs> I get you. But the bottom line is people do have choice and there are different price points. The question is, will those price points stay the same or do we reach a point of diminishing returns where supply outlasts demand? I think right now you're seeing demand be incredibly robust around the world. And again, varies from market to market because Asia is just reopening and Australia, New Zealand, Japan is just opening and China will reopen. People will travel out of that country again too. So I think that you're going to see supply growth continue to happen, but it will be with the biggest hotel companies when you think about that. I mean, today, you know, we think about our hotel group has 4% of the global supply, but 11% of the global pipeline. So the big hotel companies with the portfolio of brands, the strong loyalty programs delivering half of our room nights and technology platforms will continue to get bigger. My thanks to Keith. Imagine a modern cruise ship with all the amenities, happy passengers, happy crew, on a luxury sea journey, but on board a deadly and little understood stowaway, COVID-19, the ship, Holland America Zandak, with 1,200 passengers on board and 600 crew. The co-author of a must-read new book about that deadly cruise, Michael Smith, joins me with the story of what happened when the cruise line decided to continue that cruise. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome, Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. So, you know, this is 
really sort of like a chronicle of the experiences of one ship, its officers, its crew, its passengers, as it essentially became, as the pandemic started to spread rapidly, a, a ship with no port, um, you know, essentially drifting uh, and being denied entry into so many locations. At the same time, dwindling supplies, not enough medical equipment or supplies, certainly not enough medical personnel, and people started to die. I mean, what a crazy moment. And, and what, a, what a life lesson uh, when this is all said and done uh, for the cruise industry, not to mention this one particular cruise line, Holland America. Yeah, that's true. And that, that's why we just felt like it was such a compelling uh, makings of a book, if you will. Um, you know, it, it started with me covering the story like, like you did when it was happening, unfolding for, for Bloomberg News, where I happened to day job, basically. And, uh, and I just became really immersed in this particular cruise as sort of an emblematic um, way to look at what we all sort of went through uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, but sort of multiplied exponentially in terms of the stress and the fears and the real dangers actually they faced on, on that ship. You know, I remember, of course, the visual image is so powerful. The very first images I saw, which I'm sure you saw too, was of the Princess cruise ship in Yokohama uh, being essentially quarantined and locked down as people were getting sick and dying. And then the next story that I heard, which was yours, was this one ship from Holland America being denied entry everywhere. Yeah, that's correct. And it was quite remarkable uh, once I sort of started digging into what was going on to, to, to realize that, that, you know, this had happened before, even before March, you know, uh, in, the, in that princess ship and another princess, actually two other, there's a total of three princess ships had outbreaks uh, really before this one even set sail. So I found that quite remarkable just to sort of put it into context. And then to put it in other context, at the moment this happened, you know, the parent corporation of both of these cruise lines, Holland America and Princess, is Carnival. And their official position at the time was, you know, we got this under control. It's being handled. Everything's fine. Well, everything wasn't fine, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, you know, they uh, upper management at Carnival and, and the cruise lines underneath, like you said, Holland America in this case, um, just sort of decided that um, COVID was still really far away. You know, this ship set sail from Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, which is on literally on the other side of the world as Asia, for example, uh, and pretty far from California, where where another outbreak was actually unfolding on another princess ship, the Grand Princess. So they just decided that it was it was safe enough because they were far enough away. At least that's the way they, they describe it now. Well, again, at the moment this happened, uh, they didn't cancel anything. They didn't postpone anything. In fact, they weren't even offering refunds, right? That's correct. Um, they, uh, they basically made it very difficult to get a refund, and you couldn't just say, I don't want to go on the cruise because I'm worried about COVID. Um, so, and they certainly didn't cancel it. Uh, and in fact, the day, uh, the Zandam actually sailed from, you know, moved out of, of Buenos Aires was March 8th. Uh, and about an hour before the ship set sail, the state department put out a very stern warning saying, we recommend you do not go on a cruise ship, especially if you're, you're, you know, you're older or have any sort of, um, 
underlying conditions. And of course, basically everyone, all the passengers on the, on this cruise were over 60 at least. And some of them were into their seventies and even 80. So this was like a, the, the biggest at risk community you could think of to, you know, get on a ship and go out to sea and, you and yet, know, God forbid something were to happen. And yet the decision was made at the highest corporate level. The ship will sail. It will be a revenue cruise. I mean, essentially that's what it was. I mean, they, uh, you know, I, I was able to interview the, uh, the president of Holland America at the time. He later left, left the company soon after this, this cruise came to port. And he, that's what he told me. He said, you know, um, we just felt like it was safe to sail. Nobody was telling us we shouldn't in terms of CDC, et cetera. Um, and we believed that we had taken all the precautions we needed to keep people safe. Of course, of course, if you, of course, if you take a look at the at the history of the cruise lines with the CDC, the biggest issue they had prior to this, uh, which was, by the way, for years, and every cruise line had it, was the norovirus. And uh, something that could easily be handled and managed, and was, um, even though there were outbreaks in previous ships in previous years. But that's about as severe as it got. It was a gastrointestinal uh, issue that you know, could be managed and handled by the medical facilities on board. Clearly not the case here. Exactly. That's correct. I mean, they, you know, outbreaks of especially intestinal things like norovirus are quite common. I mean, it's not, you know, and the, the cruise industry, uh, in fact, the Zandam had multiple outbreaks over the years. Uh, but, you know, these aren't, these aren't deadly diseases usually. And the cruise line was pretty adept at, um, at dealing with that kind of viral outbreak. Um, but you know, COVID was a whole nother ball game, so to speak, as we all know, uh, certainly, uh, you know, deadly as opposed to neurovice, which is usually almost never deadly. Um, so they just weren't prepared for what, what hit them. And of course, uh, the name of the book, Cabin Fever, written by our guest, Michael Smith, along with Jonathan Franklin, one of the things that you chronicle, which really personalized it and humanized it were the individual stories of the passengers and crew members one by one, who get hit with a virus. That's correct. We, we felt that, and I, I felt this when I was reporting on the story uh, as it was unfolding. Just the, the, the personal stories of, uh, you know, what people went through on that voyage. And um, it was just remarkable. And we re- I really found it to be a story of human survival at all costs, in the case of the passengers. But really, just incredible bravery and courage on the, on the part of the crew members. And I felt that was really the, the most interesting aspect of this, this really, really horrible story was how the people who worked on this ship um, for little pay in most cases really sacrificed everything. They put their lives on the line to keep the passengers as safe as they could and to get that ship, you know, to dry land because you have to remember you know a ship is a very dangerous thing you know i mean there, there are dangers at every at every you know at every turn so to speak you know a ship can sink a ship can have a fire and you're out in the middle of nowhere literally you're out in international waters so you know this is serious business and these crew members really stepped up and uh it just it was, i just found that really remarkable and when you think about it if anybody, and you just alluded to it, if anybody were the heroes here, it had to be the crew because they didn't have any other options. They had no other choice. They had to stay. That's correct. And they were dealing with uh, unknowns uh, at sea. Um, 
And really, from the captain on down, the captain was quite remarkable. He really held everything together, and everyone really, really respected him, both his crew and passengers. And just going on down the line, all the way down to the dishwashers and the, the you know the people laboring away away in the valleys of the ship, um, you know they were doing this, and they knew that this illness was going around. They were terrified that it was COVID, but they didn't really know until the very end, basically. Uh, and dozens and dozens of their of their of their you know fellow crew members were getting sick. Yeah, and some of them quite sick. So, you know, it's just uh, I found it a, a in a way that was sort of a refreshing side of the story that people really step up. They sacrifice everything to help their fellow man. I mean, these you know you have to remember these are this is a business. This is a ship. They're getting paid to 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 work the ship, and they're you know they're getting paid to uh, help. Uh, you know, customers who were paying to go on the cruise. These aren't people they knew. They had no connection to personally in most cases, but they really just did everything they could to to really save these folks. And I think that's what, what they did in the end. They did. The name of the book, Cabin Fever by Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin. Of course, the, the obvious question for me to ask you now is in the reporting on this book, because you're, you're, you're talking to people who, in many cases, had never talked to anybody before they talked to you, at least at length. What was the biggest surprise for you? Well, the biggest surprise is how, um, how forthcoming people were that, that I could convince uh, to speak with, to me. Uh, I spoke to many more who didn't want to go on the record, but I, um, I, really, was, I really felt like a lot of these folks, um, including crew members, felt a need to tell the story of what actually happened and, uh, you know, and not knowing really that, you know, they, they basically entrusted their stories with me, um, and hoping that I would be faithful to my word and, 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 and just write the truth, which is what, what we try to do and, and did. Um, but I, I was really impressed by that, that, um, I think in a way, uh, most of these folks that talked to me that agreed to talk, wanted to, uh, they, they had a need to tell the story and I think it helped them sort of in their own sort of personal, uh, therapy, if you will, to, to get past what happened to them, which was, which was really a really, really difficult and sometimes tragic experience. You know, in any kind of a drama, this happens to be a true story. There are the good guys and the bad guys, the heroes and the villains, the obvious villain here. Number one, of course, is the virus itself, but are there other villains as well? I, I do yeah, I, I was going to say the, the 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 virus is the villain for sure, the silent killer, the silent murderer, if you will. Um, but um, you know, I I had trouble. Uh, you know, I didn't want to make this a, a a book of sort of calling out the cruise line and making it about them. You know, like about the mistakes they made, and you know, I was I was not able to find you know clear evidence of, of actual negligence where they intentionally said, we're, you know, we don't care if we get, it gets COVID, we're just going to send a boat out. I don't think that's what happened. I think it was just a lot of bad decisions. Uh, so, you know, you could, you know, <laughs> I guess some people would think the cruise, some of the folks on the cruise line are villains, but I don't, I don't even know if that's true. I just think um, they made a horrendously bad decision to let that ship go out and probably shouldn't have looking back on it. Um, but the real villain was, Number one, the virus, but I think another another sort of villain was, um, you know, governments all along the way who, who 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 refused, the you know, the desperate pleas of the captain and everybody else on the ship. You know, people were dying on the ship, and no one wanted to let, no country wanted to let the ship dock, and so, 
it's you know I guess it's it's easy to look back on it now and say wow they should have but then again they were you know all these countries were terrified of the virus coming ashore because you have to remember this is South America and Chile for example did not have any COVID case until a few days before this ship you know came you know went through along the Chilean coast so they were terrified that cruise ships were just going to bring the plague, so to speak. And we're going to, the virus is going to get to, to their countries that way. And so, you know, there was just a lot of fear um, on all sides, I guess. You know, you tell, you, you tell the story <laughs> in the book of the ship, you know, slowing down to speed to get, get into a harbor. The harbor pilot realizing they hadn't been cleared yet and that he was going too fast. He told him to stop. The ship started and stopped so many times. And finally, they said, just let it in. But, I mean, by that time, so much damage had been done. Yeah, it was quite dramatic, actually. I, I spent a lot of time with the actual harbor pilot in um, in Port Everglades, which is in just north of Miami. And these these are the uh, men and women who are the only ones who can bring, who can dock uh, any ship, especially cruise ships, into that harbor, just like any harbor in the world. So, he told this really dramatic story. Uh, first of all, how he volunteered this particular pilot who's in the book, he volunteered to take the ship in knowing, you know, despite his fears of getting COVID, uh, you know, he, he was going to have to spend time in the cabin with, with exposed to people. And, and he just decided I have to do that. Cause he said, he said, you know, when I, when I first saw the news about this uh, a few days before, all I could imagine was my grand, my grandparents on that ship. So I'm like, somebody has to help bring that ship to port. Yeah, and that it's, guy took his day, came in on his day off, right? He, he said, "I'm, I'm going to exactly. do that." Unbelievable. Yeah, he he decided to do he he, he exactly he he was he had his that, those were his days off, and he said, "Look, I'll volunteer." You know, I think there's like 20 pilots for that particular port, um, and he said, I'll, "I'm going to volunteer because if I get sick and I'm knocked out of commission." you know, I would have been, had the day off anyway, and I just got to do it. Uh, it's the right thing to do. And so that's what he did. And what you were referring to before is that um, when he actually went out on the little pilot boat to meet the ship, they, the you know, the government, uh, the state of Florida basically hadn't given the final okay for the ship to dock. And so he was saying, you know, he, they radioed up to the, to the, to the captain of the Sandam and said, look, you, you've got to slow down. We still don't have uh, approval. And the captain said, we are running out of medical oxygen. We have to get to port. So basically what he was saying is, you know, he had people on ventilators in his, in the medical sort of center on the ship, uh, people dying and they needed oxygen to survive and they were running out of oxygen. So that's when the, this pilot said, okay, go in. Like he, he basically pulled some strings and, and got them to agree to let the ship dock. But it came down to the wire just like that. It did. And I remember that because you didn't know if, from one hour to the next if they were ever going to get to shore. Uh, and then, of course, once they did get to shore, all hell broke loose anyway because it became political and it became even more intense about who was going to take responsibility. Exactly. And just the, um, you know, the the, the, the rules of engagement, so to speak, in getting the passengers and the sick uh, crew off the ship were were amazing. Like, basically, Governor DeSantis here in Florida said, um, you can only dock if you have, you know, charter flights to take everybody out of Florida. We don't want anybody staying in Florida unless they live here. 
Um, and that's, so they had to, you know, they had to put everybody on these charter flights and take them to different points around the United States. And then they just sort of dumped them into their airport and they could take their own, you know, get on any flight they wanted to go home. Um, you know, if they didn't live there. Um, and, and then you had the whole issue of the crew members on the ship were not allowed off you know, the healthy ones. Uh, and that was, you know, happened on every other cruise ship in America and basically in the world. Nobody wanted to let the people working on these ships sort of get off and go home and potentially spread COVID wherever they went. So they, uh, you know, the, the cruise lines were forced to um, take, you know, incredible measures to try to get crew home, basically on their, uh, you know, passengerless cruise ships. They basically sent ships to the Philippines, to Indonesia, uh, South America, et cetera, to take the crew home. But of course, that took weeks and weeks and weeks, and in some cases, months uh, for the, you know, the poor crew members to, oh, you're to right. make it home. You're right. The repatriation efforts for the crew members is really the, still the untold story of how many captains I know that I was talking to on marine sat phones where they were anchored offshore of, you know, countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, uh, Sri Lanka, and just with crew members on board who could not even get off then. Um, and then later on, the other untold, untold story is when the CDC lifted the no-sail order and all the cruise lines complied with all the new protocols, about 75 of them, how could you get the crew back on? Because they weren't allowed to leave those countries. It was absolutely crazy. I guess the question, we're talking to Michael Smith, who's the co-author of Cabin Fever, an amazing story of a cruise that, well, it's historic for all the wrong reasons on the Zandam during the, the height of the pandemic. I guess the real question now is, Michael, what lessons have been learned? And even more importantly, what lessons have been applied? Well, um, you know, like you said, the, the, the no-sale order was lifted and slowly but surely uh, the cruise lines have sort of gotten back into action over the last year or so, including the Zandam. It just started sailing uh, this summer, actually, again. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, the lessons they've learned is, uh, you know, there are certain protocols you can do to make sure, you know, stuff is cleaner. Um, if there is an outbreak, I think they know better how to at least react to it. Um, but, um, and also they are, you know, in the case of COVID, you, you pretty much need to have to have to be vaccinated to get on a ship now. It's, uh, you know, and I think there's still a lot of testing regimes that are going on depending on where. Um, so they're doing what they can, but um, I think uh, what you just can't escape is, the fact that a ship, a cruise ship, with all its tiny spaces and, you know, the incredibly high number of people per square foot, you know, <laughs> are just the perfect breeding ground for, for, for viruses to spread. Uh, they always have been and they always will be. It's just really difficult to get around that unless you just, you know, slash the number of passengers on a ship to the point where it's not economically feasible. For anyone to go on a cruise would be too expensive. Although, although, um, although in fairness, uh, since they've done the protocols, the word outbreak needs to be redefined because the largest number of cases that have been reported on any cruise ship in the last year and a half were about 40 
uh, 48 of them on a ship that carried 4,300 passengers. That's a caseload of, I think, 1.5%. Of course, as you said, Michael, everybody had to be vaccinated. That's officers, crew, and passengers. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that you only had 48 cases, most of which were asymptomatic, most of which had or, or, or had mild symptoms. Nobody went to the hospital and nobody died. So it, we're in the phase now, I hope, of being the, able to manage this and still enjoy our travels wherever they may take us. Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, if you get on a cruise, you just have to accept that there is a possibility that you, you know, that something could happen and, and you could get sick. And, you, you know, and it's, a, it's a low probability. Like you said, the numbers show that. And in the case of COVID, it's probably, you know, probably not going to get too sick, just like on land now, um, you know, if you're vaccinated. Um, but I think, I think people just have to understand that there is a risk and, uh, and, and, and just take that into account when you're deciding on how to travel. You know, I personally think, I think it's great that people, you know, this is the way they like to travel on a ship, seeing the world. It's just the way a lot of people like to do it. And I think that's great. Um, and I think, like you said, the maybe something good came out of this horrible experience with COVID on ships because they did uh, change a lot of the way they do a lot of things. You know, there's even talk of redesigning ships eventually. Newer ships will be designed more to you know, to, to be better sort of yeah. protected against these kinds of things. Well, you know, you, um, you use the word calculated risk. I apply that when I go on the New York City subway. I apply that when I get across the Madison Avenue, you know, get on the Madison Avenue bus. I apply that when I uh, get on an airplane, assuming the plane's not canceled or delayed. So the bottom, the, the bottom line is we just need to be more intelligent in our choices and more intelligent in our approaches and probably we'll be okay. The odds are still very much in our favor, but no matter what, the book you've got to read, it is a page turner and it really tells what really happened on that harrowing journey of the Zandam back in March of 2020. The name of the book again, Cabin Fever. The authors, Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, if I could just add one little thing. Sure. Um, one of the most amazing um, things that I discovered in spending time you know, with a number of passengers and crews, crew members is that almost all of them sort of once they got home and realized they had survived this, which most, most of them did survive, thank God, um, they all sort of had a new lease on life. I mean, it's incredible. I, 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 you know, I, I found this in you know, almost everybody I talked to, you know, just basically decided life is too short. You got to stop worrying about the petty stuff. You've got to enjoy what's left. And in a way they sort of found sort of a sort of personal redemption in what they went through. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable, you know, how uh, people who go through just a dramatic, dramatic experience like that can find something positive in life. I just thought that was really remarkable. My thanks to Michael Smith. The book again, appropriately titled Cabin Fever. And my thanks to Keith Barr, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news around the world, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. 
Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.